David, could you tell us what the model contract clauses are and how they might be utilized by a compliance or legal practitioner? Sure. So the model contract clauses are exactly what they sound like. Model contract clauses, not unlike, say, a model lease form or a standard purchase and sale of a house or whatever. They're model contract clauses for supply chains to protect the human rights of workers in those international supply chains. And depending on how you adapt them and use them, they can also be used for other things like environmental or similar values. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG Report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. And today, we're in for a treat because we're going to talk about contracting. Yes, contracting and ESG. And I have Sarah Dadush and David Snyder who are going to visit with us about the role of contracting in ESG. So Sarah, David, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Could you both tell us a little bit about your professional background and current roles? I'm a professor of law at Rutgers Law School where I also direct a program on business and human rights law. And for the last couple of years, I've been working with David and an incredible group of folks with this ABA working group to draft model contract clauses designed to improve the human rights performance of supply chains. And my background prior to joining Rutgers nine years ago, I spent a lot of time working on international development issues. I spent some time at the UN. I've written a lot about development finance and impact investing and social enterprise law, and now really focusing on how we can use contracts to improve human rights internationally. I'm also a law professor. My fields are contracts and commercial law, including their US and international and comparative aspects. And I teach at American University, and I'm also the director of our business law program. So I deal with the contracts, commercial, and corporate sides of things in that role. Before I became a law professor, I practiced at a large firm in Washington, D.C. And I have now for several years chaired a working group within the business law section of the American Bar Association to draft contract clauses to deal with things like human rights, the environment, potentially other non-product values. And it's been a really rewarding experience as we've sort of reached out beyond the business law community and started working with lots of different lawyers from different parts of the economy with very different perspectives. And it's been an amazing project. So I'd like to maybe step back for some background on how some of these areas developed. In the 90s, we had sweatshop scandals. And for me personally, the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh was a very important step in my evolution around supply chain issues and human rights and safety. But I wanted to maybe start with how do you guys see the evolution of human rights in the supply chain or some of these other issues and maybe draw us up how you developed an interest in this and bring us maybe up to today? Sure. So 
Certainly the sweatshop scandals of the 90s were very much in my mind as well. And so, as I said, my fields are contracts and commercial law, including sales of goods, and that includes their international aspects. And when the sweatshop scandals of the 90s happened, you know, I think like a lot of people, I was appalled. And I was thinking about the contract side of that and looking at doing some research into what the companies were doing to deal with this problem. And I saw that they were actually doing quite a lot. At the time, I was working on a book on international transactions and goods. And to my surprise, was able to get a lot of contracts from different companies to see what they were doing. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And I won't go into sort of the academic and theoretical interesting parts of it. But I thought, yeah, they're addressing this. And then Rana Plaza happened. And I thought, well, whatever they're doing clearly is not good enough. And we need to do something to get them beyond where they are to a stage that's going to be more effective. What they had been doing with supplier codes of conduct and some auditing and so on was maybe a good first step, but it was not enough. And that's sort of what led me to start thinking about, okay, how can I make this better? Because you know, as I say to my students, if you're making your living in this area and you know it's having some serious bad impacts, seems to me like we have some moral responsibility to try to do something about that. That's what got me into the project. And I've come to believe that doing something about that is not just good for the world, but it's also good for the companies involved. And I've found that the companies are very receptive to this. So that's how I got into it and how we started moving on this. I had been writing a lot about business and human rights generally, and from the specific perspective of consumer concerns. So I had been thinking a lot about how consumers who are interested in making purchases that are aligned with their personal values can experience a special kind of harm when they learn that, in fact, the product that they purchase was made with forced labor or made in sweatshops or made in some kind of conditions that put workers' human rights at risk. And I was presenting a paper at a conference about how consumers need to be better equipped to bring class actions against companies that make and break what I call virtuous promises about their goods. And one of the members of the working group, Jennifer Martin, came up to me and said, you know, you should really look into this model contract clauses project because it really dovetails very nicely with a lot of your research. And thanks to her, I wanted to especially name her. I got involved with the project and I just see so much potential for contracts to do good work in this space. And it continues to be a massively rewarding enterprise. I'd like to pick up with a point you both raised, which I found incredibly intriguing at this point in our conversation, which is companies see the value in not simply having these clauses, but doing the work required to make these clauses effective. And the first time I really saw that in practice started with supplier codes of conduct. And so I wanted to ask you both, is that a step you all saw in the evolution of this, putting supplier codes of conduct in place? And did that help lead to more robust contract clauses? Or is that not a fair assessment? Uh, 
I do think it's a fair assessment. I might change the tense a little bit to saying rather than it has led to this, rather than I'd say it is leading to it. I think it's a process we're still in the midst of. And the way the project really got started is the American Bar Association adopted some policies against forced labor and child labor. And they'd been working on it for years. And then it finally came through with real leadership from within the business law section. And that was sort of an interesting part of the story is when it was coming from other parts, it was very hard to get through. But when the business lawyers were combined with the international lawyers and the human rights lawyers and so on, then they were able to get it through. And then the next step from that was that the business lawyers were able to tell their clients, we think these are policies you want to sign on to. And many companies did. And we've seen many supplier codes of conduct. But what we came to see was those just sit there on the website or the policies sit there in the corporate minutes. And unless they're in the contracts, they're not going to be implemented. And the way the businesses put it is they need to be operationalized. That has been the guiding slogan for our working group is these need to be legally effective and operationally likely. And to get them implemented, to get them operationalized, they need to be in the contracts. That turns out to be from a legal perspective difficult, just as a matter of contract law for reasons that I can get into, but I won't unless you ask me to. So we thought we're commercial lawyers. We can do that work and we can help the companies do it rather than they're having to invest a lot in legal fees to get that work done. And so I do think that was a really important first step. The next step, though, is to really make them effective to get them implemented. And the contracts are key to that. David, could you take my Louisiana story and maybe uh, tell that from your perspective? Well, I'm just amazed that you mentioned this because I don't think you know this about me. I'm from Louisiana. And I worked in what most people would think of as an oil refinery. But Tom, since you're actually in the energy industry, it's truly a petrochemical processor. But if you look at it from the road, it looks like an oil refinery. Before I became a lawyer, and I know a lot of people look at me and think, really, he worked there? But yes, I did. And I saw it. And I can tell you that experience affected the way I think about these things in many ways. Partly it was through seeing what was going on. And I don't want to sidetrack us into that, but obviously it has an impact when you see the effect on real people. But I learned a couple of things. Really, the problem in that particular setting was not the company. It was really organized crime. And the company didn't like it either, and they wanted to do something about it. And that was a big lesson for me is often the corporate players are portrayed as uncaring or worse. I saw the company really trying to do something about it. So that's motivated me to try to help the companies do the right thing, because I think a lot of times that's what they want. The other thing I saw was how operations in a big industrial plant work. And that has been a really a big motivating factor for me. I want the human rights or environmental or other sorts of values to be handled and managed in the same way as producing the products, keeping the quality up keeping the timing right, and so on. And I want to integrate those non-product values together with the product values. 
And because I think that's what's most effective. And that's been a big motivator for me. Sir, could I perhaps turn to you on, with your background of work in human rights, and how do you see the intersection of human rights, the model clauses, and the S in ESG? Sure. So one thing that's interesting about the history, I suppose, of ESG is that initially, you know, we had these sort of modern slavery acts which actually began in California with the California Supply Chains Transparency Act. And those laws primarily were focused on disclosure of what's going on in supply chains. And that disclosure was directed at consumers. So part of the history of ESG is focusing on equipping consumers to make choices that are more and more aligned with their values. And with ESG, we see this sort of scale going up to include not just consumers, but also investors, which brings in not just a lot more money, but also a lot more leverage to influence corporate behavior, in particular with respect to the E, the S, and the G. And for our purposes, you know, we're really looking at the S, and the S itself is becoming quite a textured category of corporate performance. So we, through the model contract clauses, are looking very much at human rights, worker rights, and things of this nature. But there are other aspects of the S that go to, for example, diversity, equity, and inclusion, things like this. But our focus within the model contract clauses is on worker protection. And within that, you know, we tend to think often of things like child labor, trafficked labor, forced labor in various shades. And what we are including or addressing specifically in the model contract clauses, worker conditions. So absolutely, yes, forced labor, absolutely, yes, trafficking. But as well, are workers being paid? If there is a wage theft issue, that we would treat as a human rights issue that the MCCs, the model contract clauses, are designed to address. Are workers working in conditions that are approaching sweatshop conditions? There's not adequate ventilation. There's not adequate fire safety doors. There's abuses happening on the factory floor. Those kinds of things would be addressed by the MCCs. So that's our take on the S. And I think Sarah is making a crucial point. When people are only focused on forced labor, that leaves out problems like Rana Plaza. Now, it may well be that there were forced laborers in there, but the point is those people die. And that was really a worker health and safety issue, not a slavery issue. So our model clauses really are looking at that, too. David, let me, uh, now that I know of your environmental background, many lawyers and compliance professionals feel like they're not adequately equipped to deal with the E and ESG. They can put a clause in that perhaps would say you have to make these reports or you have to make these disclosures to us. But that really seems to be the limit of what they see they can do. But I hear you saying there's a wide variety of other issues specifically around the G that work in the model clause format as well. Could you expand on that a little bit? I can. We've actually done, so far, two different versions of the model contract clauses. And the first version was 
our first attempt. And every lawyer who's ever written a contract will tell you if I did it the next time, it would look very different. And that first version was very simple and relatively short and traditional in its outlook. It included any sorts of values that the company wanted to include. The idea is what we drafted were the legal part of the contracts. And then there's a schedule, what we call schedule P for policies, where the companies can include whatever they want. That could be environmental issues. It could be social issues, whatever they want in ESG and beyond. Once Sarah and others got involved, we saw that our initial approach, which was very traditional contract drafting, was really not the best way to go. And we did a second version, and that's what we have out there now and what we think is the way to go, MCC's 2.0. And they are more focused on human rights. They're a much better version, but they are more focused on human rights. What that has meant is we need to do another version that is in process right now on the environmental values. And the good news on the environmental values is it's a lot easier to specify. I'm not an environmental lawyer, and I'm not a human rights lawyer either. I'm really you know, a business lawyer. But on the environmental side, you can say, with respect to, let's say, carbon on sustainability, here are the metrics. This is what the standards need to be. On toxics, you can say, here's what we need to do. On agriculture, you can say, here's what needs to happen, and this can't happen and so on. And that project, it's being led by Mike Vandenberg from Vanderbilt University, is working on specifying all those things. And that's really helpful. They've had the environmental people looking at that. And the American Bar Association is going to be publishing a book with the model contract clauses, as well as environmental standards. So the experts have done that work. That's my answer on the ESG is you really do need some experts, and that is happening as part of a related project. So I'd like to turn now to going into the weeds of some of the contract clauses uh, you advocate in the ESG context. And early on, or at least in my contracting experience early on, I started to see reps and warranties. I came out of the anti-corruption compliance world, and in that space, it started out with reps and warranties. Then it went to specific contract clauses, as you both have suggested. So I wanted to ask you all, in terms of the evolution in contracts, if it started out with reps and warranties, why that was insufficient, and how you were able to take this area and have business lawyers understand the need for an availability of contracting clauses, and then have the business people understand the advantages of having that in a contract. So I think one thing that is the point about reps and warranties is part of a larger point that we'd love to make, which is that traditional approaches to contracting for ESG don't really work. So the way that they typically work is that they ask the supplier in the context of uh, supply goods, supply chain manufacturing contracts, they would ask the supplier to represent and warrant that there are no human rights issues anywhere in the supply chain and that they are in compliance with the buyer's code of conduct for the supplier, et cetera, in a sort of do it once and then it's supposed to apply for the whole duration of the contract. We feel strongly that this is basically asking the supplier to make a pretty meaningless representation. There is 
no way that a supplier could guarantee that there are zero problems anywhere in the supply chain and that there will be zero problems anywhere in the supply chain going forward. These are not representations that make sense in a static way. And in fact, it sort of points to a larger problem that we see with conventional approaches to contracting for ESG, which is to say you try and put all the risk, as much of the risk as possible, and as much of the responsibility as possible for upholding ESG standards onto folks that are lower down the supply chain from you, likely weaker in the supply chain from you. And that actually doesn't really work for purposes of ensuring better performance on the S. And the reason it doesn't work is because it actually can create a dynamic where the supplier is going to be incentivized not to reveal, to sort of say, yes, I certify, everything is fine. I'm just going to tick that box and it doesn't really mean anything. And then if something bad does happen, they're not going to tell the buyer about it. They're going to have all the, like many incentives to actually push the problem further into the shadows of the supply chain, because oftentimes the contracts are drafted very much with a sort of stick mentality, which is to say, if there is a problem, if you do breach on human rights, we don't give you an opportunity to cure. We immediately terminate and there could be all these penalties associated. So in a situation where the supplier, let's say, is in a context, for example, with apparel, where they're in intense competition with other apparel manufacturers, they're going to be very focused on getting and keeping the contract. And so they're not going to want the buyer to know anything about bad things that might be happening. So there is a way in which traditional contracting actually can aggravate human rights risks, which isn't good for anybody, right? It's not good for workers, A, but it's also not good for the company because it increases the legal risks that the company might be exposed to. It also produces all kinds of inefficiencies within the company's supply chain. There could be disruptions that result from problems of worker abuse in the supply chain that could negatively impact the company's bottom line. So this is why we advocate for a different approach, which is one where the responsibility for the human rights performance of the contract is more shared between the buyer and the supplier. You're not asking the supplier to take on all the responsibility without giving them also some support to meet your own human rights standards. And the buyer is taking responsibility for how their own purchasing practices, their own contracting behavior could be contributing to adverse human rights impacts further down the supply chain. David, let me pick up on a point Sarah raised that I found incredibly intriguing with one you raised right off the bat, which is companies see the business advantage to having these clauses and which led to some of the work you've done and more importantly, the advocacy you've done around this. But her point about risk and risk shifting and that companies are taking risk, shifting it onto third parties who may not be in a position to either manage that risk or assess it, manage it, and then remediate that risk 
companies still have potential legal risk, certainly reputational risk. So it's not effective to shift that risk and think you're going to have some type of liability, whether it's legal, reputational, or other going forward. And how really that works into you helping to educate companies about these types of clauses from the commercial perspective. Yeah, I think that's a really super important point, Tom. And the way I usually put it, especially when I'm talking to the companies, is to have them think about this again, not as something separate, but as something that should be part of, should be integral and as part of their supply chain management and also their compliance obligations. So it might be true if there's like this big risk out there and it's sitting on my shoulders and I can put it on somebody else's shoulders. Well, great. And maybe that's what you should do if you can do it. But the point you make, and it's really important, it's not actually that hard to see, is you can't. You still have this risk. So risk shifting just doesn't work. What you need to do and the responsible thing to do, and this is what lawyers need to help their clients do, is manage the risk. So if you think about it from the operations perspective, if you need, just to take a simple example, 50,000 t-shirts and you need them by a certain time and so on, do you want to just say, okay, hey world, anybody want to give us 50,000 t-shirts following specs, following timeline, and you just tell us whether you can do it. And if so, we'll go with you. That's not how it works. Companies need to go in and make sure, hey, can they make the t-shirts? Are they going to make reasonable t-shirts? Are they going to get them to us on time? And so the buyer is taking responsibility there on the product side of thing, on the supply chain management side of thing, on the business risk side of things, because they don't get the t-shirts or they're terrible or whatever, then they're going to suffer the consequences. Well, that's every bit is true on the human rights risk, environmental risk, and so on, is it's just not effective to say, oh, you know, you're going to have that risk and I'm not going to. You can't get rid of it. So what you need to do is you need to manage it in the way that's most effective. The way I can really bring it home to companies right now is we have customs and border protection issuing withhold release orders, which normal people think of as seizures of the goods. Customs says, oh, we're not seizing the goods. That comes later. But anyway, to the company, it sure feels like the goods got seized. And it's a strict liability regime. If those goods were made with forced labor, then they cannot come into this country. Customs doesn't want to know, oh, do you have 10 pages of questionnaires where they told you they didn't have any child labor, forced labor, and so on. No, if they did, then you know we're seizing the goods. So the companies need to have this be effective. When I explain it that way, I think they really feel that, yeah, that is true, and we know how to handle these issues, and we just need to fold this into our mainline supply chain management, which includes, crucially, the contracts that set everything up. Has that message, I'm going to use the word work better, but I know that's not the right phrasing, but has that message become one that has resonated more over the past couple of years and the challenges in the supply chain that were brought about because of the pandemic to the general counsel's office, to the business lawyers understand the need to really focus on the legal part of supply chain to help the business operations of the company as well? I would love to tell you the answer is clearly yes. I at least don't feel prepared to say that. Are there supply chain issues out there? 
Yes, there are tremendous supply chain issues out there. Are your contracts going to fix all those problems? No, they're not going to fix all those problems. Some of the problems that we're talking about with respect to COVID disruptions and so on, they have to do with something else that you can't necessarily solve with a contract. However, what the contracts can do is improve the likelihood that you can control your supply chains better. But that tends to go to supply chain resilience. So that's about things like excess capacity, redundancy, and so on. And those are business decisions that are, I think, in a little bit of a separate bucket, because what it requires is greater investment. On the one hand, here CEOs talk about what I want is agility, and I want to be able to switch, and I want low switching costs and that sort of thing. You push on that end of the scale really hard, then if something like COVID comes, you're going to be in really big trouble because you've got no redundancy, you've got no strong investment, you've got relatively little in the way of control. So there are business decisions to be made there. So that's the sort of COVID disruption side. The other disruption side that come from forced labor and the custom seizures and that sort of thing, yes, I think the contracts really help. And I think our message really resonates because of that. I will say that COVID has had a big effect in other ways on the workers. And we do try to really address that. I mean, I think COVID has actually had an immense impact on how companies, in particular suppliers, look at their contracts. I don't think up until COVID happened that suppliers in particular were paying as much attention to their contracts. When COVID hit, for example, in the apparel sector, a lot of companies, a lot of buyers, retailers, fashion brands, etc., canceled their orders and their contracts with suppliers overseas. And this had tremendous impact and they would cancel saying maybe they had a force measure close that covered pandemics, maybe they didn't, whatever it was, they canceled the contract. And this had huge impacts for workers in particular and for manufacturers that were already operating on very thin margins and couldn't sort of weather the storm of order cancellations. Also for orders that had not just been placed, but not manufactured. But buyers canceled orders for orders that have been completely manufactured and in some cases even shipped. And so the impacts for unemployment, exposure of workers to what is being referred to as a massive wave of wage theft and things like this was very serious. And then suddenly all these suppliers were like, what, what, what is this contract? What is this supply contract? What does it actually say about these types of situations? So we reflect that in the model contract clauses. We say that if a buyer wants to exit a contract, it has to do so in a responsible manner, which includes giving the supplier adequate notice and paying for any invoices for orders that were placed or manufactured prior to the date of termination. But it's also... This phenomenon of contracts and force majeure clauses being used in this way by firms has activated a lot of attention also by legislators. I think it is a part of the fuel of the EU's process to develop its draft directive on mandatory human rights due diligence. 
is in part what happened because of COVID and how contracts were used slash misused in the context of COVID. The MCCs really, I think, are encouraging a bit of a paradigm shift around how we think about risk and how we think about contracts as instruments you know, that can be drafted and prepared in such a way that effectively manages risk, as David was saying. And I don't think lawyers are terribly well equipped or used to thinking about their contracts as allies in implementing their ESG policies or their human rights policies. That's because largely lawyers don't often connect the dots, like commercial contracting lawyers don't often connect the dots between contract terms and the effects of the contract terms on third-party, non-party stakeholders like workers. And this is something that we really hope the MCCs can help with is to sort of connect those dots that lawyers aren't trained to make and give them a, a toolkit, a set of tools that can allow them to more effectively connect those dots so as to effectively manage risk. Let me change the focus just a little bit because you brought up a point I wanted to touch on, which is can these clauses or the model clauses that you both have been instrumental in helping to draft help companies with their regulatory obligations, either under uh, the EU directive or things that are coming out now from the Securities and Exchange Commission or states in the United States? So the answer to that is definitely yes. There are a couple things to say. First is to underline something I said before is we're not alone in this. There's, I think, maybe even consensus, but certainly a lot of thought that this sort of approach of shared responsibility and human rights due diligence rather than reps and warranties that everybody knows are false and frankly impossible for them to be thoroughly true. The human rights due diligence, shared responsibility that we see in other aspects of operations are going to be more effective. And bottom line, that is the most important thing. From a sort of compliance lawyer's perspective and a lawyer's perspective in general, they do a bunch of other things. One is they show the regulators that you're serious about doing something about this. This is not just paper. And when we've talked to some of the regulators and enforcers, the first things they say is, well, contracts can say whatever, but what we want to see is that it's real. And that's certainly true. If you sign one of these contracts and don't put it into place, all you've got is paper. But once you've agreed to this human rights due diligence or a due diligence regime, and then we also have clauses about sharing information and generating documentation and that sort of thing, then you are going to be able to document what you have done. And that could be very important. If you've got your goods being held at the border, you say, no, I can show you what we've done, what's going on, and then you'll have the documentation that you're going to need. And that's in the worst case scenario where you actually have a seizure what we're typically worried about is having the compliance people within the company making sure we've got these policies in place, they're being set up in the contract, and then we have the suppliers doing what they're supposed to do, we're doing what we're supposed to do, we're sharing this information. The sharing of the information will necessarily result in the communication and the documentation of what's going on. It could be things like plane tickets for 
either your employees or an auditor or whoever going out there. It could be emails when you know this comes up and you deal with this problem and so on. Because again, these clauses are premised on the idea that things are not going to be perfect. Then you need to fix them and that will generate what you need for the regulatory compliance side of things. So I've been talking to some degree on the US side of things, on the European side of things. So the law in place right now in France that's been passed in Germany that they're working on in the EU, those actually are human rights due diligence regimes. And we very much had those in mind. They're really based on the principles and the UN guiding principles. And that's what we've been trying to do. And that will work even more directly under those more European regimes. Yeah, the MCCs can definitely help with compliance in part because they move away from this unilateral model of contracting, which we really have seen doesn't work to achieve good human rights or indeed environmental outcomes. And part of the proposal, the proposition of the MCCs is to say, look, your contracts may not be hurting, but they can do a lot more to help you implement your own ESG policies and your own ESG objectives. And to the extent that you can enlist them as more sort of powerful, effective allies, you will do better on compliance as well. There is an aspect of this that is one way to manage risk is actually to reduce it. Your contracts can be enlisted as allies to reduce risk. That will help with compliance. And as it currently stands, a lot of companies commit to doing really good on the E and really good on the S, but then they have these contracts that really don't support and in some cases undermine those very objectives. And when there is this mismatch, we would sort of refer to that mismatch and disconnect as a kind of coherence gap that contracts that use the MCCs can help bridge. And it's very much an internal process of like aligning your internal contracts and your internal sort of private legal life with your public commitments to achieve better outcomes on the E, on the S, perhaps also on the G, and by extension to achieve better compliance. So the only thing I'm going to disagree with you on, Sarah, it's not perhaps the G. That is directly the G. So you have now tied the three together. That was brilliant. Unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on either yourselves or the topics we've touched on today. Sarah, what would be the best way to find you? I think the best way is just to look up my name, Google my name, Sarah Dadouche, and you can find all my contact info, et cetera, on my faculty profile page. I also am happy to hear from people. I have a super easy email address, dsnyder at american.edu. That works especially well when I'm outside the U.S. because I, you know, I'm like the American guy. So dsnyder at american.edu, that'll get you to me. Google me, David Snyder at American University. I come right up and you can see the faculty profile for me. And I'm hoping we can share that with the audience. But I think the most important thing is I'd love for you to look at the model contract clauses. And that is available on the ABA, the American Bar Association Center for Human Rights website in a very user-friendly way. And 
we can share that with you. And that includes a Word version of the core pieces. So if you want to like actually copy and paste them into documents, we put them there for that reason. And we know people are using them that way. And it also has explanation. Or if you want sort of the single piece as officially published uh, in the Business Lawyer, which is the publication of the business law section of the ABA, that is up on SSRN and we can share that with you too. I should say this does come out of the business law section of the ABA. This is not official ABA policy. And I, I do want to be clear about that. Well, I really, really, really enjoyed this. And I greatly look forward to continuing this conversation. So thanks again to both of you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And I hope we get to engage more with you and your audience.